Welcome to the Rupa Subramania Show, everybody. I'm your host, Rupa Subramania. Today, we're going to talk about the implications of the highly polarized global response to the Israel-Palestine crisis and how it relates to debates about freedom of expression. We're seeing protests in many major Western cities, including right here in Ottawa, both in support of Palestine and or Hamas, and a smaller number, it would appear, in support of Israel. That deep division in global geopolitics is mirrored on our streets and on our university campuses, where different groups have expressed support and solidarity for whatever side of the conflict they're on. But what happens when peaceful protest is banned, or when expressing solidarity with one side is met with censorship? Where does that leave the peaceful and free expression of people's views? In a controversial development, Germany and France have chosen to ban pro-Palestinian demonstrations. Meanwhile, the British Foreign Secretary has suggested that even a carrying a Palestinian flag in public may count as a criminal offense. Such developments raise serious questions about the status of free speech and open debate in Western lib liberal societies. These bans have ignited fierce debates about how to navigate the right to express dissenting opinions in a complex international conflict. Now, pro-Palestinian rallies in Western countries are large, suggesting significant public support. The sheer size of these rallies may lead other Western governments and governments elsewhere, for that matter, to consider banning them. It's a precarious balance between preserving the right to free expression and preventing peaceful rallies from becoming violent. For example, an initially peaceful protest in Amman, Jordan, outside the U.S. and Israeli embassies turned violent as some protesters burned tires and attempted to storm the Israeli embassy, which was broken up by the police using tear gas. Meanwhile, here in Canada and in the U.S., these rallies predominantly are pro-Palestinian, also reflect demographic changes in Western countries, particularly among the young. Many young people on the progressive left have thrown their support behind the Palestinian cause, some going as far as to label Israel as an apartheid state, as a settler colonial state. In this ever-evolving landscape, it's clear that emotions are running high and people around the world are deeply concerned about the violence in the Middle East and free speech and individual liberties are once again under attack as they were during the pandemic in Western liberal democracies. My own view is the following. I'm opposed to countries trying to ban peaceful protests and in some places even trying to ban the Palestinian flag. I'm also opposed to canceling students and professors who for merely expressing their views, even if I find those views to be abhorrent. Here's why. For one thing, censorship, banning, canceling, all of this plays into the hands of Hamas and other extremists who would like nothing better than to see Western liberal societies go against their own liberal values. It also goes against the classical liberal values of free speech and tolerance that I strongly believe in, even if those views are ones that I strongly disagree with. I firmly believe that we must uphold our classical small-l liberal values of free speech, tolerance, and open debate. As long as someone is expressing their view peacefully, even if that view is something that we strongly disagree with, their right to express themselves freely must be protected. 
My guest today to help us untangle this debate is Josh Dehas. He is counsel with the Canadian Constitution Fund, a former journalist and a practicing lawyer. So Josh, welcome to the show. I want to start by asking you um, about what's been happening in some countries, uh, uh, Western countries actually, uh, where um, pro-Palestinian demonstrations, rallies, they're proposing to ban them, the British Foreign Secretary mooted the idea that even carrying a Palestinian flag uh, in public could be considered a criminal offense. Uh, I want to ask you, how do such actions, state actions, align with the principles of free speech and open debate? And uh, what do they tell us more broadly about the state of free speech in Western liberal liberal democracies? Yeah, so uh, these these rallies that we've seen, whether you label them, you know, pro-Palestinian rallies or in some cases, more accurately, pro-Hamas rallies, they're really testing our commitments to, you know, freedom of speech and freedom of assembly in uh, Western countries. And I think some um, some leaders of some of these countries are failing because um, they are, you know, proposing to ban protests ahead of time. And that's something that we really don't want to see Western countries do. You know, for example, France, I was just reading this morning, uh, Thomas Chatterton uh, Williams was uh, writing about this. Uh, they've banned pro-Palestinian uh, rallies in advance, saying that they're uh, somehow a threat to public order and that, you know, violence is sure to break out. But that's not necessarily the case. And what you have to remember is if we let governments and police ban rallies um, that we don't like, you know, these pro-Hamas rallies that are pretty pretty abhorrent in a lot of ways, then they will feel that they have the power to ban rallies when we want to protest the government, whether it's, you know, something like the truckers protest or any other rally where we're trying to, you know, uh, change um, public policy and assert our rights to free expression and and freedom of assembly. So um, it's very concerning. And that's not to say that police don't have any power here, right? There's a lot of things they can do, Rupa, to to um, to prevent uh, violence from breaking out. If, if somebody's at a rally and there's about to be a breach of the peace, police can step in and they can make arrests and they can stop that from happening. And they have, in fact, a duty to do that. And, you know, if people are promoting things like genocide, that's illegal in Canada. And those people can be charged um, after the fact for, for that. But we really want to be very careful about um, banning rallies uh, of any of any type. Yeah, no, I, I'm fully with you on that. Uh, let's let's uh, come back to Canada. Uh, what do what do our laws say about freedom of expression? What is protected under freedom of expression and under freedom of assembly? Yeah, so our Charter of Rights and Freedoms uh, from 1982 protects freedom of expression, and it also protects freedom of peaceful assembly. And those two rights are pretty closely related, but they are different. And so freedom of expression, our courts have said, basically protects all speech, all expression, as long as it's not violent. And so it goes really well beyond um, just, you know, speech or printing something in a newspaper, even, you know, parking your car as a protest is in a prima facie way protected under the charter. Now, we also have um, reasonable limits on charter rights in Canada. So if the government can show that some law that limits our freedom of speech is demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society, they can 
impose certain limits. And also within like the free speech test itself, there are some limits like you can't violence is not speech. You can't say I'm going to shoot someone and that's my version of expression. And there are also, you know, reasonable sort of limits in terms of like uh, time and also the place um, where you can express yourself. So obviously you're going to have a right to express yourself like outside of the parliament building. Maybe you can hand out pamphlets inside the parliament building. Um, but you're not going to be allowed to express yourself through like occupying the prime minister's office. So there are some some limits on it, but generally the limits are not supposed to be content specific. So you should be able to say the most extreme and controversial things and uh, not uh, lose protection for that. So the courts are not always great about upholding that um, content neutral rule, but basically all free speech is protected except for these sort of uh, reasonable limits. And then assembly goes beyond that, and it's protected by a different section of our charter, 2C. And um, there's not actually a lot of court jurisprudence on what freedom of assembly means. So there is a bit of a debate. Like, um, it's very obvious that it protects political expression. So it's very obvious that freedom of assembly protects, like, going to Queen's Park here in Toronto or going to the Parliament buildings in Ottawa and holding a, a peaceful rally. Uh, some people think, think it protects more than that, though. So some people think it protects um, the Christmas dinner that you had during COVID when the government was trying to tell you you couldn't get together with your families. And so little of this has actually gone through the courts at this point that we don't know for sure how the courts would interpret that. But um, it's clear that it covers at least the political assemblies and um, the word peaceful there is really key because, mm. you know, a riot is not going to be covered under peaceful assembly because it's violent and there are all kinds of questions of like what peaceful means and you Rupa you were at the trucker protests a lot covering that and so you know all these arguments about how the horns were violence or um, parking your truck in a particular place is violence. And um, personally, I think those are probably peaceful activities. But again, they might be activities that you can limit under Section 1 of the Charter. So using all the other laws, like, you know, you could use the, the criminal law if someone is, um, you know, uh, you know, doing something, breaching the peace, or if they're, you know, at the border, blockading the border there are laws that can come into play that would not impact your freedom of assembly if you're protesting on the border and blocking all the goods coming into canada so um, that doesn't yeah. mean we needed to use the emergencies act but because we have laws already in place but not all of that was was protected so what you're what you're saying now confirms uh uh, to me, what I've long, I've, I've believed for a very long time, that the constitutional protection for free speech in Canada is a lot weaker um, here than it is in the U.S. I wonder if you could, um, I mean, if you're if you're um, able to speak to that, uh, how 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 do these, how does this compare to the U.S. for example? Yeah, the U. So the U.S.'s freedom of speech is protected in their First Amendment passed in 1791, and it says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. And that is stronger language, and they don't have limiting language. But there are some limits on free expression in the United States, and um, the bar has just been set a lot higher by the courts. So the courts have come up with those limits, and they've set the bar um, in a different place in Canada. 
you know, for example, hate speech is completely protected. It's not really limited in the United States, but here in Canada, we had a big uh, constitutional case on whether the hate speech provisions that predate the charter were unconstitutional now that the charter says you have a right to freedom of expression. And uh, this case was called Keekstra. It was about this really nasty uh, anti-Semitic teacher in Alberta who was you know, teaching all the kids to hate Jews and saying the most vile things about them that you can imagine. Um, but the question was like, should we use the criminal law to put this person in jail for his words? Um, or does he have a right to free speech and um, you should, he should only basically just be fired? So, you know, it was a 5-4 decision and the Supreme Court of Canada Chief Justice said, yes, he has free speech, but it's a reasonable limit on that speech because in his view, you know, words, hurt, words, words can cause harm, they hurt people's feelings, and they can lead to, in his view, um, something like the Holocaust. And, um, you know, I can sort of see that argument. I can sympathize with people that, that believe that. Uh, but there was a much better counterargument made in the minority by uh, Justice McLaughlin. And she was saying, you know, these, these laws are not going to be effective anyway. Um, you just draw attention to the hateful ideas by, by talking about them and making this guy into a martyr. And, you know, Nazi Germany had hate speech laws and look how well that went in the 1930s. Um, but long story short, the, the Supreme Court upheld um, hate speech laws, which is something that um, is not a thing in the U.S. So mm. there, are, there are some limits on speech in Canada that you wouldn't see in the States. Yeah, I mean, going back to these uh, rallies that are, you know, where Western countries, governments are trying to ban them. I went to a rally this past weekend in Ottawa, a uh, pro-Gaza rally, and um, and it was very informative. You know, I faced some resistance, um, you know, while trying to interview interview people, um, you know, they were all suspicious of uh, any journalist, um, uh, very similar to my experience through the Freedom Convoy, and I really had to work to gain their trust, and eventually I did manage to speak to a few people. But that's the whole point. You see, we wouldn't wouldn't know what their views are if you were to ban them, right? And so, you know, it was actually very informative, and I was able to interview like 20 people, and and I wrote about it, and, and, uh, you know, other people have thanked me for this for this for this reportage because it's actually been very hard to find Palestinian voices pro Palestinian voices to actually come on the record and uh, speak to people yeah you know what Rupa I just read that article in the free press and I, I clicked on some of the videos and it was really really enlightening for me because I'm pretty pro Israel. Um, I was horrified about what happened. And, you know, I actually don't have come to think of it any Palestinian friends or even close Arab friends. And I don't really go out and seek out their point of view necessarily. So, you know, it was really helpful for me to see that, you know, some of those people at the rally, they are probably um, a little bit misinformed about um, what what's happened here. And other people, they're you know, more or less brainwashed, and they have this really, really militant, uh, frightening point of view. But I was able to see like the arguments that they're making, right? So um, they 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 made some arguments that I hadn't thought about before. Now, if I want to 
um, try and convince people to change their mind, I have a better point of view about um, what the actual issues are here. And so, you know, that's that's just one one really good reason not to not to ban these rallies. But there are other reasons. And the biggest one, obviously, is the one I mentioned before, which is that as soon as you give governments or police the power to ban political rallies that um, are unpopular with the powers that be, they're going to do it to to you one day, right? Some government is going to be in power that you don't like and that wants to suppress your speech. And um, so it's good to have maintain the same rule and the same principle for everybody, even in times like this, where it's frightening that there are a lot of people out there with those views. Yeah, no, absolutely. I find them abhorrent, but I want them out there um, um, because it, it actually helps me understand the situation. And uh, But, you know, going back to, you know, many of the people that I spoke to were young people. There were students um, uh, at, at the university here. Um, and let's, you know, I want to talk about what's been happening at um, at universities, um, you know, not just uh, here in Canada, but uh, in the U.S., especially at the Ivy Leagues, uh, such as Harvard. Harvard, there have been um, there have been attempts. There have been there's been a naming and shaming of students involved in writing these uh, pro-Palestinian letters condemning Israel. Um, in some cases, there there have been attempts to censure uh, uh, them academically. Uh, for voicing their support for the Palestinian cause. Um, some major donors at these universities have indicated that they, um, that, you know, they, that they will withhold future planned donations uh, if universities permit pro-Palestinian activism to continue unchecked. And of course, that, also, that all accords with, with their free speech, right? These donations are voluntary, and they're free to withdraw them if they if they think that it's not going to be used, uh, you know, according to their wishes. What is what is your take on both sides of this debate on our campuses? I mean, do you think uh, I I vehemently oppose cancel culture of any kind, whatever side it is on, and I'm. I fully realize that the people who are being canceled right now would never come to my defense if I were in that situation, but I still uphold their right to speak freely. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And, and I got to say, like, I've never come across a situation that has tested my um, opposition to cancel culture more because some of the things I've seen my own former professors at Osgood Law School here in Toronto tweet are just unforgivable. And um, I really, really, you know, part of me wants them to lose their job and to face big consequences. But um, but at the end of the day, uh, universities need to be places where you can express the most controversial ideas. And um, universities have, obviously, professors have free expression. But in the university context, what we're talking about more, I think, is academic freedom, whether you're talking about students or professors. And that's a similar concept, which is like, basically, you know, professors and students can't be punished for their political or their religious points of view. Um, and what the only thing they can really be punished for is, you know, not teaching the subject that they're supposed to teach. And it, this sort of developed because throughout history, the church was always trying to control what people could think in universities. You know, um, you couldn't say that the sun, you couldn't say that the earth was round, right? Or else mm. you face the the inquisition. Um, you and lots of ideas that come up on campus 
that uh, seem absolutely wrong and absolutely crazy to everyone turn out to be right in the long run. And so you need a space for that where everyone is going to be able to express the most controversial ideas without risking getting getting fired. So that's why we have academic freedom. And I think I, I do support um, continuing with that, that principle. Um, I was thinking about this, like academic freedom, uh, if you go back to like the 1960s in Canada, there were no places where you could talk about like gay rights, like LGBT rights, which is what we call them now. And the only place you could do that was on campus. Like you couldn't talk about it in the newspapers. If you talked about it at work, even if you work for the government, you're going to get fired immediately. Mm -hmm. And over time, people have come to realize that like gay people deserve equal rights because they have um, had these these discussions that first started on campus. So um, I think you should call out a lot of these students, more so the professors, like students are there to learn and they make stupid mistakes. And I think you should be able to forgive people when they're in that learning process in their early 20s. Um, but it's okay to call them out and to say their speech is wrong, um, but they shouldn't be facing, you know, punishments for that. And the same with professors, like I absolutely despise what some of these professors have said, but I don't want to see them fired for it. Because again, if you can fire uh, a professor for an idea that you don't like, then you can be fired for an idea that some other professor doesn't like. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly an irony here, right, that uh, many on the so-called progressive left who were busy canceling uh, people that they disagreed with uh, and tarring uh, people like me as far right and uh, and that sort of thing, uh, the shoe is now on the other foot um, as they face cancellation uh, by people on the right. Um, and so I wonder, I mean, do you think uh, the right's commitment to uh, free speech um, has been selective? Do you think it was mostly a political thing and not a genuine commitment to free speech? Because I've noticed a lot of people who are pro-freedom um, and, you know, supported the truckers' right to protest and were against vaccine mandates and big government and uh, protesting and, 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 and uh, you know, voicing their concerns against uh, regarding government overreach are quite okay with banning uh, rallies and uh, censuring people. Yeah, I think um, it, I think it's a good point. I think that um, the, the right in Canada and the US can be a little bit more principled about these things, but it's really hard. It's, you know, it's hard to, to maintain these principles because we have this sort of human nature where we want to punish people for um, ideas we don't like. Like that's the natural approach is to get angry and to say people should be punished for for having these abhorrent ideas you know free free speech is not sort of the natural um human nature it's something that takes takes work to commit to those principles and remind yourself um that even though someone might have tried to cancel you you shouldn't you know cancel them in revenge and um you know i i'm actually surprised by how many people have been supportive of the position that you know we at the Constitution Foundation have taken, which is that um, we don't like these pro Hamas rallies, but people have a right to go out and 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 say what they think as long as they don't breach the law. 
Um, and we've, we've had so many people write to us and say that they, they support us and that we're, they're glad we're being principled in this particular moment. And so, um, I do still, still have some hope for, for these things. I want to get your take on, um, uh, incitement to violence and hate speech. Um, uh, I tend to, I tend toward free speech absolutism, uh, and I think that anti-hate speech, what is considered as hate speech, it's it's these are very it's a vague definition as far as I'm concerned. I've been accused of hate speech, uh, you know, and you know for for some 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 positions I've taken. Um, is there a red line here, um, um, you know, beyond which free expression turns into hateful incitement to violence that ought to be censored or censured um, and even subject to criminal charges? So first of all, I just want to say I absolutely agree with you that it's really, really hard to define what's hateful. And this is um, this has always been a problem for judges, like the Keekshire case I mentioned before. Um, Justice McLaughlin was saying we shouldn't have this willful promotion to hatred uh, section of the criminal code. We shouldn't be sending people to jail for hate because hate is extremely subjective. And, um, you know, the 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 Chief Justice at the time, Brian Dixon, in another case uh, called um, Taylor, said, oh, no, it's actually fine. We can figure out what what's hateful and what isn't. And it's not that subjective. Everybody knows it means vilification, calumny, and um, detestation. Mm. It's like, well, those are just sim- synonyms for hatred, right? And if you or I go on Twitter, we know that people are constantly uh, accusing everyone of hate speech all the time. And so it's like a very dangerous thing to outlaw hate speech. And I'm extremely opposed to, you know, human rights tribunals deciding what you say online is, is hateful or not. And some of the proposals we've heard about that, like uh, Bill C-36, but, um, you know, the Supreme Court has decided there are, there are some limits that are constitutional and those are where you're inciting to, to violence, like you say. So, um, for example, Section 318 of the Criminal Code um, that says it's illegal to incite um, incite people towards genocide. So, if you think about that, like, and I've seen some videos out there of protests where it looks like this is happening, where people go to a rally and they say, you know, Jews are subhuman, uh, Jews should be killed. Let's go find some Jews and kill them. That happened in in London, England recently to me that crosses the line into criminality and that person is a, th- a, th- a threat in a sense of they're about to commit physical violence against Jews and they're encouraging other people to commit you know physical violence or genocide so I think that is a line um, I think that's a line that's clear enough that the law is um, is uh, supportable so I can see 318 being a justified limit on free speech, but the one we were talking about earlier, which is the willful promotion of hatred, which is what Keekstra considered, I don't think that's a justifiable limit, and it's because people are always accusing other people of hatred, and it's just such a subjective thing, and you know that the powers that be are going to use that um, if they can to, you know, suppress 
controversial but perfectly legal and acceptable speech that helps us get to the bottom of things in a democracy. Um, can you tell me a bit about uh, Bill C-36, um, which is uh, trying to um, make uh, speech online, online speech, uh, it's, it's trying to regulate it. So um, uh, could you explain to us what, what the implications of that are? Yeah, so C-36 I'm happy to talk about anytime someone wants to talk about because it's one of the most frightening laws mm. I've ever seen proposed in Canada from a free speech perspective. And basically, just to give a little bit of background, so we used to have in the uh, Canadian Human Rights Code or the Act um, at the federal level, we used to have a prohibition on, you know, hateful speech, so communicating hateful communications. And this predated most of the internet and social media, and um, the Supreme Court upheld that, that as, as legal in a case called Taylor that I mentioned. But um, it became a real problem, this Section 13 of the, the Human Rights Act, because uh, what you had was the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal taking journalists to um, essentially to court and saying, you know, journalists, you can't print this or you need to print something else or we're going to fine you for printing something that we consider discriminatory. And the most famous case of this was a guy named Mark Stein, who's now he's often on American um, shows now. But at the mm -hmm. time, he wrote for McLean's magazine, which is the magazine that I went to work for a couple of years after this incident. And Stein wrote this article called The Future Belongs to Islam. And basically, his thesis was and I reread this a couple months ago. Um, his thesis was that Europe is demographically very rapidly becoming more Islamic because mm. um, like European birth rates are really low and all of the immigration is from Muslim countries and fertility among the Muslim Im immigrants was really high. So his thesis was very, very controversial. It was basically that Europe is going to um, no longer be a democracy. One day it's going to be a theocracy because the demographics are just shifting towards an Islamic majority in Europe. And, you know, this was 20 years ago and um, it was a pretty inflammatory article, but the, the idea that the government, government bureaucrats working for this human rights tribunal could come to McLean's and say, this article is discriminatory. We want you to publish another article that we approve of from these Muslim people who are angry with you and we're going to potentially fine you. That was just, beyond the pale. And actually, at that point, all the journalists from whether you're at the you know National Post or mm -hmm. the Toronto Star, all the journalists got together and said this Section 13 has got to go. So Stephen Harper was elected, he got rid of Section 13. And we no longer had this discriminatory speech provision. Justin Trudeau, for whatever reason, decided he wants to bring this back and make it even more extreme than it was before. And, and bring it back in the internet era where there are, you know, millions of people who could potentially complain about uh, so-called hate speech online. And so he proposed this in a bill called C-36. The main part of the bill would be bringing back the Section 13 and saying people can haul you before this tribunal where you might have to pay them $20,000 if you said something they didn't like online on Twitter. And they could fine you up to $50,000, Rupa, if you tweeted something that was hateful. Um, and your accusers could be anonymous, potentially. 
So you would have anonymous people complaining about your tweets as being hateful and they get the commission goes after you they help they help this person go after you anonymously and you have to pay you know potentially twenty thousand dollars to them um and that was only half of it there's also criminal code changes so a judge could decide that someone was about to commit hate speech and could put conditions on you to ensure you don't commit hate speech like an ankle bracelet or um, a curfew or potentially even jail you. And if you didn't comply, you would go to jail for because they're concerned that you might commit hate speech in the future. Like this law is just absurd. Mm. And it actually passed in parliament, the, the first reading. But thankfully in 2021, we had an election. So before the bill could get all the way through third reading in the Senate and signed off by um, the governor general, the bill died. And so uh, for now it's gone. Who knows if they'll bring it back? Well, that's, uh, you know, what the bill, of course, itself is frightening the way you've, you've described it. And uh, it, it, you know, and this leads me to my next question, which is, you know, for, for something like this to even come about, it has to have a fair amount of support. Um, and why is it that in this country we are just willing to go along with with this kind of thing where we're so incredibly compliant that we don't we don't see these attacks on our individual liberties in the same way say say you know our 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 american friends feel very strongly you know when you when you take away their right to do something you know especially when it comes to things like guns uh, but um, but you know here we just seem to go along with this this uh, bill c11 which is now law once again, just passed, you know, uh, and there was a lot of noise towards the end, but in the end it passed, it's now law. And I, and that again is, you know, an attack on free speech. And now this Bill C-36 could, could come back at some point, I, I imagine. And I just don't see people agitating against this kind of thing. You know, what's going on? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think um, a big part of it goes to Canadian culture and we're just mm. a different culture. Like the Americans have a revolutionary origin, whereas Canadians have um, their origin in, you know, supporting the British and not having a revolution. And also, of course, we have the whole component of Canada that's um, that's uh, Quebecois. And another part of so another part of it is, you know, the the U.S. They really do teach the Constitution in their schools, and people have little printed Constitution books um, and they sort of regular people know the text. Whereas here, you know, our constitution is a bit more complicated. We have the charter, but it's pretty new. It's only, you know, 30, 40 years old or so. So we just haven't built up that that culture of um, respect for the constitution that that Americans have. So I think it's pretty cultural. At the same time, you know, you can see the argument for some of these restrictions. Like if you don't think much about free expression, you don't worry much that the government's going to come after your expression because, for example, maybe you support the current government and you agree with everything that they say. Mm -hmm. um, I can see people saying we need to crack down on hate speech online. You know, it's harmful. It hurts people's feelings. It makes them feel like they can't go on Twitter and participate because it's too toxic or um, you know, people think abhorrent things about my religion or my gender or my sexual orientation, and therefore the government should be trying to do something. But 
doing something is very different than um, eliminating people's free speech, right? You can you mm -hmm. can do other you can do other things to count counter hateful speech than suppress speech. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. I mean, uh, it's a it's a pretty dispiriting situation for sure, uh, especially here. Uh, we always seem to be like different than everybody else uh, when it comes to free speech. Uh, but now, I mean, in the context of this current uh, crisis, um, you have even France. Uh, you know, trying to ban uh, um, protests and rallies that uh, are marching in in favor of the Palestinian cause. But Josh, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show uh, and offering your insights. Uh, it's been a very informative conversation for me and hopefully for our viewers and listeners as well. And I really hope to have you back on my show soon. Thanks so much, Rupa. Take care. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye.